This talk is meant to be somewhat of a balance to the happiness talk the other night. There are a series of images I remember from one of Carlos Castaneda's books. Don Juan and Carlos are walking down a busy street somewhere in Mexico. And as they're walking, Carlos sees a caterpillar crossing the road. He stoops down and picks it up, carries it across the street, and places it apparently free from danger on the other side of the road. Then Don Juan responds with fury. He calls Carlos a fool for interrupting the caterpillar's unique and dangerous journey. He says that this could have been the caterpillar's act of great empowerment and fulfillment if the insect had successfully and by its own effort crossed the street. We are all like that caterpillar traveling across the road and it is a delicate and mysterious process along the way. In the Buddha's first sermon, he spoke of the Four Noble Truths as an orientation to the ending of suffering. For true happiness and peace to ripen in every being. These four truths are like the four points of a compass. And as we travel across the road, we each have to make our own map. I cannot kiss the pain away from any being and make it better. We all have to free ourselves. We all have to find our own inner contentment and peace. And we each have the possibility of orienting ourselves to the brilliant facets presented in the Four Noble Truths. So tonight I would like to begin to speak about Dukkha or the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. As the first step to a deepening happiness, we have to wake up. We have to fully realize our own suffering. Each and every being who takes birth in this universe, just like that tiny caterpillar, is crossing that, that road every moment. Dukkha is a concept that some people tend to have difficulty with. <coughs> There's a dog named Roscoe who lives up a dirt road nearby. <coughs> some of you might have met him. Mostly, though, he lives his life hooked to a chain. 
Every once in a while I go up to the house where he lives and I take him for a walk. I release the chain and he jumps in ecstasy as we start to go for a walk. On the way back, as we arrive closer to his home, it is not very predictable whether he will graciously go back to his chain. I sometimes bribe him with food, which works every time that I remember to bring food. But sometimes I forget, like the other day, and he runs away, which usually means about a half an hour frustrating search. So this time, after about a 45-minute struggle, I dragged him all the way back to his chain and hooked it. And he howled and cried, and I could hear him howling and crying until I walked inside the door here at IMS. That howling is similar to our own howling. His vulnerability is the same as our vulnerability. His insecurity is the same as our insecurity. Can I kiss his pain and make it all right? How do we find any true happiness and peace? What is our suffering? We also have a chain. We are chained to the five aggregates, or to our own ego. And not seeing this clearly is the truth of our suffering. So again, dukkha can be a word that people have difficulty hearing and understanding. At the mere mention of the word suffering, the defenses go up, and a strong desire to prove some sort of stubborn optimism arises. Or else a subtler attitude of endurance by resisting occurs. It's when we feel like we're gritting our teeth, gritting our teeth through this next sitting, gritting our teeth through this day, or gritting our teeth through our life. What I feel like we're trying to do in our meditation is to understand dukkha. This means exploring what this mind and body really is. And there are many subtleties to it. Once one can truly open to the suffering, there can be a real joy and a true happiness in the understanding of the suffering. So dukkha is defined as pain, a painful feeling 
which may be bodily or mental. The term dukkha, though, is not limited to painful experience. It is further defined as the unsatisfactory nature and the general insecurity of all conditioned phenomena, which, on account of the impermanence of the phenomena, we are all liable to suffering. This includes pleasurable experience. Therefore, dukkha means the liability to suffering or unsatisfactoriness. This does not mean that we deny the existence of pleasurable experience, as it is sometimes wrongly assumed. It merely means changeability. When the astronauts landed on the moon for the first time, and they looked out on the earth, what they felt most keenly was its fragility. It's that same fragility as the caterpillar or of Roscoe. All beings that take birth in this universe are liable to three kinds of suffering, which Sharon mentioned the other night. There is dukkha dukkha, which is the suffering of painful feelings in the body, old age, disease, and death. There's anicca dukkha, which is the fact that we have no control. It's the uncertainty that we live with because we really never know what's around the corner. We never know what's going to happen next. This also includes the sorrow of loss, which means that pleasant experiences pass. And the third kind of dukkha is called sankara dukkha. It's the suffering inherent in formations themselves. I would like to concentrate tonight on the first two. What is this fragility? Basically, it's called the five skandhas, or the five aggregates. The Buddha said that to know the first noble truth, or to know suffering, is to know the five skandhas. So what is this mind-body process? The Buddha said that we're just a set of five aggregates, or five skandhas. The first one is material form. This is earth, air, fire, and water. The whole universe is made out of 
these four what are called primary elements. So when you feel stiffness or tightness or motion or vibration or movement, this is the air element. And if you feel softness or hardness, this is the earth element. The fire element is when you feel coolness, warmth, or hot, or cold. And the water element is what holds all the others together, it's cohesion. This is what the universe is made up of. They're called four primary elements and all bodies are made up of them. That's the first skanda. The next one is feelings. There's feelings due to visual impression, sound impression, smell impression, taste impression, body impressions, and mental impressions. And I won't go into that very much because I did already in terms of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. The feelings, these feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral are due to the visual impression. They're due to the sound impression. They're due to the smell impression. The third skanda is perception. Visible forms, sounds, odors, tastes, bodily impressions, and mental. The fourth skanda is called mental formations or volitions. And you could think of that as just what makes up our personality. It's all the mental states. Anger, love, joy, sorrow. It includes basically what we call the ego. It includes also any intention of mind. And the fifth skanda is consciousness itself. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. So the Buddha declared that the five aggregates or skandhas are dukkha. And he said that all experience is dukkha. He said that we are these five and the five are us. Why are they dukkha? It is because they're impermanent. There's a saying that goes back to the Buddha's time that I'd like to read about the skandhas. Suppose a person were to see the many bubbles on the Ganges as they are driving along. And he should watch them and carefully examine them. 
after carefully examining them, they will appear to be empty, unreal, and unsubstantial. In exactly the same way does this person see all corporal phenomena, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and states of consciousness. Whether past or present or future, one's own or external, gross or subtle. And one watches them and examines them carefully. And after carefully examining them, they appear to be empty, unreal, and and unsubstantial. The Buddha said that the body's like a lump of foam, the feelings like a water bubble, perception like a void mirage, formations like a banana tree, and consciousness like jugglery. Apathia is a Greek word that means non-suffering. In other words, apathy is the inability or the refusal to experience pain. It is this indifference to the truth of our suffering, to admit that we are lost that results in confusion and deeper suffering, rather than a search for understanding and for truth. In our culture, we tend to view pain as not serving any purpose. In our meditation or in our lives, we think that we are having difficulty And that means that something is wrong. And that a difficult sitting is therefore a bad sitting. To break through the prison cell of apathy, one must be willing to face the darkness. It can be a long, dark night of the soul to start to try to understand what vipassana really means. There can be a lot of despair in learning to understand what this mind and body process really is. So it's our willingness to acknowledge and to experience painful sensations. It's our willingness to admit that we are vulnerable and fragile and in danger in the middle of the road that starts us in the process of being able to see more and more clearly. The more we see clearly, the more there's happiness. 
At this point in the retreat, it is probably quite clear to you what I was talking about, about bringing the evil out into the open. It's seeing our suffering. It is the process of mindfulness itself which cleanses our perception of what is that is a healing and restorative process. It is our willingness that is essential to look mindfully and carefully at each moment no matter what it is that allows this healing process, this restorative process to occur. The, the awareness itself is what is purifying. I once went to England to do a month-long retreat. And most of my effort in the retreat went toward finding a comfortable spot to practice. I had arrived very tired and had caught the flu before I, I arrived. And then it turned out that I was highly allergic to every possible phenomena <laughs> in the country, <laughs> such as mildew, wool, hay, everything. And they were cutting hay outside of the retreat building the whole month. Plus, it rained every day, except for once. <laughs> and it was really cold, and it was June. And I hadn't expected cold weather in the month of June, so I didn't bring any warm clothes. So needless to say, there wasn't one spot that I could find to be comfortable in. But I kept looking. So after about two and a half weeks, one day the sun started shining in a break of the clouds. So I grabbed my zafu and I practically ran to this field nearby that was bathed in sunlight. And I sat down, and it was the first pleasurable experience that I had had in two and a half weeks. So I was quite happy. So I was just sitting there uh, and just feeling the warmth of the sun. And then it started getting hot. <laughs> and then after about five or ten minutes, it was getting hotter. And then these flies appeared, and then ants, then perspiration dripping down, and then it was hotter. And this was a real insight. <laughs> it's what they call insight. It was just this flash <laughs> that I, there was absolutely nowhere to go. That there was nothing I could do. And it was my first glimmer that there's really no peace except in unconditional acceptance of what is happening. I began to learn that trying to avoid painful feelings and manipulate the outer circumstances for comfort 
is futile if we want to learn about a deeper happiness. This is an example of anicca dukkha. Seeing that we have absolutely no control over how we're going to respond to sensations, that they'll be pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the suffering here is when we're unwilling to flow with life, to move on with life, to be in harmony with things as they are. In this way, dukkha can be seen as a synonym for anicca. There is a kind of oppression that comes from being with moment-to-moment change and not seeing it clearly. Whenever any phenomena arises, we cannot stop it from passing away. Therefore, there's no refuge. There's nothing dependable. And when you see this clearly, the illusion of pleasure is broken and there's no craving anymore. Craving cannot arise if you see this clearly. One sees the bubbles and one sees that there's no security in the bubbles. So why grasp for what is not there. This seeing this over and over will bring about this unconditional acceptance, accepting what is there unconditionally, not based on what it is that's there. One starts to see that clarity is developing a mind that is ready for anything to appear, seeing clearly what is there and not fooled by what is there. In Steve's talk the other night, he said that not seeing dukkha is dukkha. So that when one sees fully dukkha, it's not dukkha anymore. And there's a great happiness that comes from that. But you have to go through the whole road. Painful sensations in the body, or dukkha dukkha, can be one of our greatest teachers. Nobody can escape the body breaking down. The natural, unpleasant sensations in the body, the accumulation of knots and tensions, not to mention the whole aging process or sickness or death. There are a full range of textures and tones that arise in this mind and body process. And these range from the most subtle and sweet and soft to the very dense and agonizing and harsh. When there is a lack of attention, as has been said before, 
We react to the pleasant feelings by clinging to it and to the unpleasant sensations by resisting. These reactions, if we're not mindful, are usually accompanied by judging, fear, anger, despair, self-pity, or doubt. This creates knots and tensions that accumulate in the body and mind. So as our mind begins to quiet and concentration increases, there is actually an increasing ability to open to the pain as it surfaces and it will release. During the retreat I did last summer with Upandita, I feel that I developed quite an intimate relationship with Dukkha Dukkha. Many times I felt like an iceberg that was just beginning to melt. When I began the course, I could only sit an hour a day and I had had a very chronic, painful back condition for five years. So over those years, I learned that what was unbearable about painful sensations is just that we don't want the unpleasantness of them. It's not the sensations themselves and that sensations are only pain when we can't open anymore and when we don't see the sensations clearly. The difficulty comes when we try to open to the unbearableness through forcing and not through gentleness. So as concentration deepens, when one goes to areas such as hot daggers, sharp knives, tons of pressure, hot coils, steel plates, multifaceted razor blades, <laughs> or Rice Krispies, the sensations will appear to intensify one can hardly believe it, but it's happening. They actually intensify. The pain is magnified by the power of concentration. So as insight deepens, and also when the energy is high, it can be quite amazing and invigorating to see these sensations just as those four primary elements of air, fire, water, and <laughs> earth revealing themselves. They can be seen just as sensations, not as pain. When these intense sensations arise, it's important to get as close to the sensations as possible. One can keep attentive to the sensations 
and relax around them and settle back. Then one can go into the sensation again and soften around them, go into them again, soften around them. If the sensations are still intense, what's important is to give the mind a rest. Return to the primary object. This takes patience and perseverance. And the mind will wither like a flower that you put out in the sun that you've picked. If one tries to penetrate the pain without gentleness. This becomes more and more delicate and more and more subtle and very humbling. And it's the same with physical or mental pain. At times one can feel very defeated and what one is being defeated by is the aversion to the sensations and by the desire to get rid of them, not by the sensations themselves. If one's being with sensations to get rid of them, it's like gritting your teeth through the pain. It's an endurance test and it's not mindfulness. If the energy is low, and the pain is overwhelming and unbearable, it is important not to push yourself or to rush the process. If one's intention is to open the knots and open the tension and get rid of the pain, it reinforces the sense of I, my pain, and one contracts and contracts and develops more knots and more tension. If one still tries to go into pain at this point, there can be an overwhelming sense of oppression and defeat, and the energy really goes down. What is important here is to see clearly that one is able to open to what is happening. (laughs) We all want to be perfect. We all want to be open all the time. We all want to be open to what is happening. And so what is unbearable here is that one doesn't want to open to (laughs) being unable to open. And this is crucial. It's crucial to see in terms of over a three-month course, there are just going to be times when you can't open. And if you judge yourself for that, it just, (laughs) it's a dead end and the energy just goes down. And so one has to see that at this point, one has to soften to the actuality that one can't open, and that there's nothing wrong with that, that it's part of being a human being. So there's only a war going on if there's no mindfulness. If, if there's a war going on, it's imaginary. 
And the best thing to do is to get in the imaginary trenches. So what does that mean? It means that you put a white flag up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't open anymore. And, and just to recognize that over the days, you can recognize that that doesn't mean that you have to bludgeon yourself to death and that there needs to be these huge pools of blood around you. It really doesn't. <laughs> What one has to see is that one has to soften here. One just opens to the feeling of not being able to open. That becomes the object. Then one, once the white flag goes up, one asks oneself, what do I need to do to be able to open to not being able to open? One learns to balance oneself. It simply might mean going back to the breath. Or it might mean feeling this, what the, it feels like to not be able to open, to go into the body, stay away from judging. It might feel tight or heavy or hot, and it will be changing, but it's important to get to know what that feels like. Or, this is when it can be seen that the walking is very balancing. It can soften the mind. It can open a lot of space in the mind. It can, it can increase energy and concentration, or it can merely just be a softening. This place of not being able to open or near defeat is when fear attacks are most predominant and planning mind has a heyday. And again, this is the time when we most, must be most gentle, gentle and persevering. I find that the practice becomes deeper and deeper when I know when to be yielding and when to be firm. This is another quote from Don Juan. Carlos questions him, is it so terrible to be a timid person? And he answers, no, it isn't if you are going to be immortal. But if you are going to die, there is no time for timidity. Simply because Timidity makes you cling to something that exists only in your thoughts. It soothes you while everything is at a lull. But then the awesome, mysterious world will open its mouth for you, as it will open for every one of us. And then you will realize that your sure ways were not so sure at all. Being timid prevents us from examining and exploiting our lot as human beings.
we can learn from and we can accept and we can develop clarity in every moment of our lives. When we start admitting the existential plight of all beings, when we see that all beings who take birth, seen and unseen, know pain and fear, we can develop compassion and patience with ourselves and with all beings. When the willingness to open to pain is there, one can feel the simple, it's very simple and profound happiness in not having to avoid anything anymore. To open to the totality of life. The more that we avoid unpleasantness, the more we actually increase our fear. The less we need to manipulate and control, it means there is less fear. There's an image um, that I don't mean to be negative about soldiers, but I have an image of a marine and an image of a flower. And there's a kind of unshakability that a marine is conditioned to experience. But that's coming, it's coming from a kind of closing off and tightening and shutting down. But there's also another kind of strength that's a strength that comes from opening to being vulnerable, opening to fragility. And there's no fear there. So to be with whatever is happening and to learn from each situation, one might even open to someone picking us up in the middle of the road and placing us across the street. The more one can open to life, the more we can let go of control. This takes much trust and inner strength. And that's what we're doing. We're developing an inner security. And it's a long haul. I'd like to end with a quote from Tagore. It's called The Prayer of the Bodhisattva. Let me not pray to be sheltered from dangers, but to be fearless in facing them. Let me not beg for the stilling of my pain, but for the heart to conquer it. 
Let me not look to allies in life's battlefield, but to my own strengths. Let me not crave in anxious fear to be saved, but hope for patience to win my freedom. Any questions? <laughs> yeah, um, I've been having this really intense pain in the back of the Could you speak a little louder, please? Oh, yeah, I um, I've been having this really, really intense pain in the back of the And it's like, I haven't had so much trouble like opening to it or getting close to it. But it's kind of like it's like a magnet. Whenever, whenever it's like that, very often, it just like pulls my mind into it like that. And when I try to do the primary object to sort of take a breath, uh, what happens is it just gets more intense. Like any kind of concentrated thing gets more intense when I back under the thumb like back there. And what happens is that after a while, uh, I get this mental torpor just and then I just sort of just go into this sort of slothful thing. And, and uh, I haven't been able to figure out how to manage to do the you know, pain investigation without kind of just getting lost in this morass. What happens when you get pulled into it? Um, it's, uh, it's just so intense. What does that mean? What? I'm unable to experience anything else once it gets going. It's just so powerful. What I wonder is what intensity means. I mean, it's okay not to feel anything else. Yeah, the magnitude of sensation just, it's overwhelming and uh, it just kind of like it sucks all the energy. I don't know, the, the feeling I have is that I get so concentrated that when Is the intent is the intensity unpleasant? Well, um, I don't have very much aversion by things. I mean, a lot of it's unpleasant, but it's not. It's bringing up a lot of Are you able to see, like, distinguish heat or? Oh yeah, I mean, it's very good. Uh huh. Just like I get exhausted, <laughs> and the, the dilemma is that I can't. Have you tried just going into the trench, which is, in this case, wherever the pain is, you, you, you go outside of it? Um, 
sometimes that's possible. Sometimes it's not. Because sometimes it's just, I don't know how to describe it, you draw the mind in. I think that what you'll find is if you immediately, if you go in and you stay for a little while, what is happening is that you're getting tired from staying there. So even if you're just, even if you go back and you're pulled in and you go back and you get pulled in, it's staying there that's the problem. And if you can just, just start I mean, it might not be tomorrow or the next day, but start training yourself to go go in, but just not to stay there. Hmm. So just be very light about the amount of time you spend. Well, that makes sense because it's kind of like it just—it's a good half hour, forty minutes, and just you know, this one. And you can—you don't have to just jump back to the primary object wherever you are. You can—you can go just outside that area. And then you might go in a little bit and come out and go in a little bit and then you might come back to the breath and then you can go in, outside of it, breath. You can have a, a movement rather than going into quicksand. And if you get really strung out, stay with hearing for a while. No. I, w- I was wondering about how to start seeing the sense objects as being just foam on the on the Ganges River. It's like I can realize that my thoughts are, are just like the clouds. You know, they they come because there are certain conditions that make the water vapor. You know, and okay, here's this cloud and it passes and it kind of comes from nowhere and goes from nowhere. And I can see my thoughts, my mental objects is that, but when I touch that tree, I feel like I'm really touching something that's solid and real, and it's hard for me to see the sense objects and the mind objects in the same light. When you touch the tree, stay there for a while. Some people find it just the opposite. Some people find that it's very easy to see something like touching the tree, you know, the, the texture as being very much like a bubble. And they'll have a very difficult time seeing thoughts, you know, they seem very solid and real. You know, so it, it's, it differs for people. And it's being able to s- start to tune into the change that one will start to be able to tune into the bubbles. So it might be one moment, it might be tingling that one feels, and the next moment it might be softness, and the next moment it might be tingling, and the next moment it might be um, some vibration or whatever, and that, that will start bringing about that sense of just seeing it as bubbles.
it's not the time to try to be very microscopic. You know, when you're feeling, I'm talking about a time when you're feeling very tight and fed up and frustrated. What's happening is that that is actually an unpleasant sensation. And so what we're not liking is that it doesn't feel good to feel that way. And to try to get microscopic through that unpleasantness, not wanting it to be there, it's, it becomes a battle. And so if you realize that, okay, I'm sitting here and it's time to walk, I wouldn't start getting into every little microscopic sensation in the knee, <laughs> because basically we can't do that then. And what one can do is just immediately start by opening, opening one's field of attention. So you can start paying attention to color and to a large area of the body rather than focusing right in. But it's really important not to get spaced out. So one stays with sensations, but one opens up the field of attention so that that tension can start dissipating, and that actually brings about the gentleness. So instead of trying to dive bomb (laughs) sensations, one becomes very receptive. And I'm not sure if there's anything else I can say. It's almost like you open up, you can open up to the whole room rather than very microscopic and then kind of slowly bring your attention to the movement of the body and the legs rather than getting really tight with the attention. Whatever you can do to stay grounded in the sensation. So usually, for most people, it's really helpful to have some... Fine. (laughs) Can you say anything about the the Dukkha Sankaras? I, I can't figure them out. Dukkha Dukkha, which is body and mind pain, and then the Dukkha of ungovernability and so forth. What else is left? The question is about Sankara Dukkha, and um, I'm going to avoid the question by saying that uh, only Arahants are supposedly, fully realized beings, are supposed to really understand Sankara Dukkha. Um, 
I know we're not supposed to think too much, but sometimes. Um, basically, we'd get a lobotomy if we wanted to get rid of thinking. So it's not like we're ever going to get rid of thinking. So if, for chance, you have the... It's so quick. I mean, you have the burning sensation, and maybe the thought goes through, I took too much hot... uh, condiment today, even though it's <laughs> moderation. You know, that, you know, that, that might just come through like that. And it's just the thought, and it's not like you can control that. If, <clears throat> if the thought comes, and then you choose to start really thinking about it, thinking about that whole thought, that's when it tends to go into indulging. Because we're staying with, we're trying to stay with the bare sensations. Mostly we're trying to stay with the elements and seeing them change. And if that thought comes through, it's not like you have to push it away. It's just thinking. And then it might be, oh yeah, maybe that's true, or, you know, whatever. And then... And the, if you started trying to <laughs> investigate <clears throat> the cause of every unpleasant sensation, <laughs> that's sankara for me. That's sankara dukkha. You know, the, it's karmic. And it's not going to lead to being happy. One more. What happens is that, like in one mind moment, one will tend to be predominant, and they're all they're all there in one mind moment, but one will be predominant at any given time. I think we'll go back to Sankara Dukkha. I mean, in some ways, to try to figure out what's appearing is endless. It's like... Um, I guess with my question, I'm trying to what the four elements really mean. I mean, in terms of modern science, like you talked about astronauts landing on the moon, and then you start talking about the four elements, mm-hmm. you know, It's basically the anywhere you go in the universe, 
you know, whether you go into the cheek or if you go into the knee or you go into the brain or you go into the Mars or whatever, it's basically earth, air, fire, water manifesting in one way or the other. So that if you think of the eye, eye or the nose, that when you... Say you think of Michelle right now. There's a word Michelle, but really, what does that mean? Or there's a bench here, or there's a rug there. Hearing, seeing, and this. They kind of move into the area of like the, the nose self, that we're like these four elements are kind of converging and coming apart and mm-hmm. taking different shapes. And so, if I think of Michelle, there's kind of a combination of that's all, they're all there, but they're manifesting. And changing, and there's and no. Changing like the bubbles in the river. Right, great. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way, good way to end. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.